Hi, I'm Rajesh Vastava. Hi, I'm Vibhav Chabra, and you're listening to the Jigar Community Podcast. You're listening to the Do More With Less podcast produced by the Jagad community. I'm your host, Trishala, and I'm part of the Jagad community team. If you've been with me from the start, you know us very well by now, and I'm thrilled that you're still here. For new listeners, welcome to the show. Jagad community is the world's first learning community of over 5,200 people now from 13 countries centered on modern day Jagad and its various forms, driving value for individuals and the people around them. In this podcast, we explore modern day Jagad through five conversations. Today, we're traveling to Goa in India to chat with Vebhav Chabra and Vrachashavastava from Makers Asylum. If you heard episode two of this podcast with Jadi Benavi, you probably heard the very compelling story they shared of Jagad innovation at its finest during this pandemic. The story of the very impressive couple, equally impressive as individuals who led and worked alongside their team and communities across India to build 1 million face shields for frontline workers in a little over a month. That's Beba, Richa, and Makers Asylum. I was so inspired by their story that I immediately got online on their website and on Google and started reading up everything I could about them and their work. I knew I needed to find a way to connect with them and get them on this podcast, so I did what any other 20-something-year-old would do. I slid into their DMs on Instagram, and boy, am I glad that I did. Bebov is the founder and chief learning officer of Makers Asylum, Richa, the managing partner. Both of them, in Richa's words, led parallel lives and had fulfilling corporate careers until they both got to a crossroads, as life would have it the same crossroads. They started dating and soon decided to work together to grow Makers Asylum. In their own words, Makers Asylum is a learning playground to get your hands dirty and make your ideas happen. In this playground, there are only three rules, make, break, create. I mean, how often in life are we actually encouraged to break things? We spoke about the maker movement, how making is for everyone, alternative learning models in comparison to traditional learning rooted in marks and memorization, multidisciplinary teams and approaches, and building faster, better, cheaper products with less. Most importantly, we spoke about their incredibly important work in the face of adversity during the lockdowns that hit India on March 23rd, 2020, with the M19 initiative. Anything I say about the M19 initiative will never do enough justice to the story. So all I can do is encourage you to hear it for yourself. It is one of the most compelling stories of innovation I have ever heard. A case study you'll find in textbooks and classes of the future. They recently moved to Goa and I was able to catch both of them in the early but busy hours of the morning to chat over their morning coffee. Vevav and Richa are passionate, defiant, resilient community builders, but most importantly, they're makers. I really enjoyed this conversation. I walked away feeling so inspired and eager to just get out there and do cool, fun, meaningful things and build things without carrying the baggage of failure, fear, or ego. And I'm ready to share it with you. So let's get started.
What is your earliest memory of Jagad in your life? Start. I think you should start because I need to think. Well, uh, growing up uh, in Delhi, I came across Jagad every day of my life on the streets. Pretty much that was most of the time something that fascinated me. I remember even working at an auto garage in Delhi uh, and learning about cars and learning about how to fix them. And it was just a normal thing to do. I mean, you just need to find a jagar for it mm-hmm. to be able to fix it. Jagar is a quick fix to the problem, but half the times it was an incomplete fix, but most of the times it actually worked and it did really cool stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, I think uh, one time, I think for my sister and I, we had this walkie-talkie uh, that we used to use. And uh, I think it broke. And I think I remember fixing it myself with some tapes and some, you know, uh, things to sort of get it working. And, you know, because it was like our thing uh, at the house. So, yeah, I think that would be my earliest memory of sort of fixing something and uh I can completely relate to the walkie-talkie example. My sister and I had many broken walkie-talkies. So I want to ask you both about your individual journeys before we get to Makers Asylum and the wonderful things you're accomplishing as a team. While I'm sure it's impossible to capture all your experiences in its entirety, what were some of the key experiences that led you to Makers Asylum? So uh, I did my mechanical engineering and studying in Boston. Uh, I had the uh, privilege to be able to study at a great university over there, Boston University. And then I immediately afterwards started working at MIT Media Labs with a startup over there called iNetra. And uh, what was really exciting was uh, the way that they worked. Because uh, while we were in one lab and while we were one startup or a company, we were using all sorts of labs and makerspaces across the city to be able to prototype and make stuff. Mm-hmm. So literally my day would start in one place and I would be in three different places, prototyping and making different parts of uh, uh, the device and uh, testing it uh, with my own hands because I was able to use the machines and bring it back and learn a lot in the process. But what happened is over the time, uh, over about a year, uh, they asked me to move back to India mm-hmm. to be able to set up a base over here to be able to see how we can uh, really grow the device here. When I moved to India, uh, uh, there weren't any labs over here. There weren't any maker spaces. I had to go to a service provider and ask him to give me a service fee and charge me a bomb and then make it for me. So the entire fun of making and the entire uh, excitement of being able to do Jagard or to uh, some creation out of it was gone, was completely missing in the entire process, which is what really, really made me frustrated moving back over here. Apart from that, I loved what I was doing. I had a really uh, great leadership role where I was sort of developing and working with hospitals, coming up with new ways and how to grow the device, all of those things. But when it came to the making part, which I loved the most, there was nothing. Mm-hmm. So... And Mumbai was a very, very new city to me because I wasn't born and brought up in Mumbai. So I didn't know anyone there. And Sundays used to be the most boring days of my life. Uh, (laughs) So that's when Makers Asylum started as a Sunday only hobby to uh, get people together and make stuff. So sort of like a side hustle then, would you say? Yeah, pretty much. So uh, it has a fun story. The way it started was also fun. Uh, I was planning to start it for a very long time. 
that a sort of a Sunday maker club community sort of a thing where we would uh, we could sort of find people to come together, uh, but never really had the courage to press the go button until uh, the ceiling of Anitra's office fell down and everything broke. So it broke our furniture and it gave us an opportunity to build new furniture. And uh, that's when uh, we got the first five, six people to come in and we made a bunch of tables and chairs for the lab and a prototyping space. And that's when uh, we called that place uh, Maker's Asylum, uh, which was actually the back room of Anitra's office. I love that. There literally couldn't have been a bigger, louder, clearer sign than the ceiling of Ainetsu literally collapsing um, for you to then decide to, to go forward and do this. Absolutely inspiring. Um, Richa, on your end, you've written a beautiful post on the Makers Asylum blog about you know your pursuit for career freedom and contentment. What has your journey prior to Makers Asylum been like? I mean, I had a very uh, different, I think, life that was parallelly going on with their past life. So, uh, so I did my engineering in India and then I was working in telecommunications for about five years after I graduated Idea Senator where I was hired as a you know engineer, graduate engineer trainee as part of my first uh, career move and then I moved into supporting the chief technology officer's office. Uh, so it was sort of a mixed role of uh, some parts of uh, business strategy and some parts of uh, technology strategy and a lot of um, insights and support to the leadership of the organization. Uh, but after that, I wanted to sort of formalize my education in business. So I went away. Before that, I had a really, really fun uh, job with the government of Andhra Pradesh, where I was working uh, with the chief minister's IT advisory and strategy to drive uh, fintech blockchain investments into the state. So we're sort of working with a lot of startup community, um, creating a lot of um, partnerships with different countries. Then I sort of was moving out of that role. And, and I had met Webha a long time back when I was working with IDEA. So incidentally, when he had moved to uh, India at the time, I had also moved to Mumbai. And that time, one of my friends had, you know, sort of said that, you know, if you were bored, if you want to like uh, hang out at this cool spot that's come up, why don't you go to Maker's Asylum? So uh, I sort of went back then and I thought it was really fun. And, uh, I think uh, uh, when I was leaving the government of Andhra Pradesh, and at that time, actually, we'd started dating uh, a little before that. Uh, I was sort of leaving my job and, <laughs> and that's when uh, I was deciding what to do next. And uh, we were on a trip to Europe. His work was happening in France and I was just taking a break. So, you know, I had an insight into what he was doing mm -hmm. and I found it really exciting. It was not about the makerspace as such. It was all about, you know, alternative learning, how the future of learning is changing and the conversations were much, much broader and exciting in the way of creating a learning ecosystem with uh, the core being a lot of hands-on education, a lot of uh, making, a lot of uh, tinkering and which really excited me because like, I, I am an engineer myself and I obviously uh, was driven uh, by making at that point in time as well. But um, at that time when we got back from that trip and um, we were having a conversation and uh, Weber said, why don't you uh, think about uh, using your skill sets for Maker's Asylum? <laughs> so that's how I uh, decided to come in uh, to the space. I think um, it has been a, a really exciting space for a lot of people to sort of come in and do things. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is a lot of work that is needed as well in terms of 
making these spaces more financially sustainable, sort of creating revenue models around this, because we are an independent makerspace. So it's, uh, we're not funded by a university or corporate organization. Most mm-hmm. makerspaces across the world are either under a university umbrella or are funded or have government grants and things like that. But we are an independent like social enterprise. So uh, we both thought that it could be exciting to sort of uh, bring that in to see how we can, you know, really create uh, a much more larger vision for making asylum. That's wonderful. I mean, this whole story of, of your parallel lives that were going on just reminds me of the quote, um, you know, life is what happens when we're busy making plans. Uh, it, it feels very, you know, serendipitous that your paths crossed and to see the wonderful work that you're doing now and the relationship you share, it's, it's fantastic. Um, Richa, you spoke a bit about, you know, the future of learning and alternate learning models. Did you ever, did you both ever grapple with this growing up in school or college? What were your experiences like growing through a system that I would assume was fairly traditional? I think Weber will have a much uh, better answer to this because he was the one who didn't like going to school and, uh, you know, sitting in class and doing traditional learning. I have been a very traditional learner myself. (laughs) Uh, Well, I changed four schools in the same city. Uh, All the teachers used to kick me out of the class, tell me, or, oh Lord, nothing can happen to you (laughs) or with you, rather. Uh, especially my Hindi teacher, English teacher, chemistry teacher, and biology teacher. Maths and physics was pretty okay. They were like, uh, they, they didn't complain. <laughs> I wasn't very good at mem- memorizing stuff, I would say that, in school. Uh, I was a good learner. I enjoyed understanding concepts. I enjoyed uh, understanding and applying those things. But uh, I guess... Uh, uh, the way we learned in school didn't really work for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I think uh, I didn't really get along with any of my schools or teachers. Eventually, though, uh, when I had the opportunity to come to Boston, it really allowed me to learn differently. What was exciting was that now I wasn't learning only from classroom, but we were learning from makerspaces and we were learning from labs and we were spending a lot of time in Uh, community workshops where we were able to break stuff and uh, find out what's wrong and then fix it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically do a lot of jugaad. Uh, And I found that as a very, very exciting way to learn, honestly. It gave me exposure to different kind of people uh, from very, very different mindsets and very, very different walks of life. It allowed me to experiment with uh, different kind of materials, different kind of machines and uh, different kind of softwares and different kind of skills rather. And that's uh, what I found very, very exciting and effective to be able to solve problems. Over the years, I really realized how big of a value is working with a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary team and how uh, effective it is having the freedom to be able to break stuff, to be able to create new things. When I once again moved back to Mumbai, at that time, I felt that was lacking again. The boss that we had in India at that time, who was the head of the marketing angle for Ainetra as well. He uh, had a very traditional mindset over there. So he uh, wanted to do things in a similar fashion, wanted to do things the right way. Uh, however, we wanted to experiment, which is what I think Makers Asylum aspired to break. 
You spoke about the freedom to experiment and wanting to break out of the silos. Something I see here in corporate North America is that innovation or the freedom to experiment is reserved for a handful of lucky people or limited to a team. That culture of innovation and experimentation is not something that's widely promoted across the organization, maybe in corporate values. Um, but not in practice. The rest of us are sort of supposed to follow status quo or operate within a box with very real limits. I can understand the urge to break out of that. Uh, just to add over there, because uh, uh, at least growing up uh, in the labs inside schools and colleges, they treat the machines as if they're gods. So, so that means that you're not allowed to touch the machines or uh, play with them or experiment with them. Yeah, that's true. I agree because I went to a very traditional engineering college in India. Yeah. And I think I'm very envious of Webb's experience in Boston because, you know, for us, it was very different, these labs. You know, I really, at some point, I think I did not do a lot of uh, making or like, you know, actually experimenting at these labs. It was more so that, you know, you're um, following a yeah. certain pattern yeah, every time. Yeah, you're following a certain pattern. I mean, that's true. I get what they're trying to do over there because uh, they're scared of the machines breaking. But honestly, at Maker's Asylum, uh, we've had hundreds of machines break. Mm-hmm. Uh, but over the years, we've only learned how to make them better and fix them better. Honestly, it hasn't costed us an extra penny, but every time the machine breaks, we all just figure out ways to make it better or make the entire machine better. We've designed better machines than we got. And I think that's one of the more exciting things because mm-hmm. if, if, you're, if you're stopped or if you're stopped so many times to be able to just... Uh, uh, use the machines or things like that, you don't get the confidence. Uh, so if you're constantly being stopped from breaking stuff as well, you l- don't allow yourself to get that confidence to be able to make new things. And uh, the only way to get that confidence to be able to make stuff is by making stuff. Yeah, I agree. Um, so in a lot of ways, it's like a vicious cycle that starts in our schools and colleges and moves into our workplace and personal lives as well. Um, you know, I think Maker's Asylum breaks that cycle and is democratizing innovation, which is so refreshing. So for the listeners that aren't too familiar with what you do, tell us about Maker's Asylum in your words. What's the why and who's it for? So uh, the why behind Maker's Asylum is honestly very, very simple. Allowing people like myself and others to come together and share tools to be able to make whatever you want to make. There wasn't too much of a thought behind it before it started. It was pretty much about uh, bringing like-minded people together and share tools. Simply yeah, that. We want to hang out with cool people all the time, so that's why. <laughs> that's yeah. why this and, and anyone is welcome. So always the thought was that no matter what background you're from, artists, accountants, we have pilots coming in to make his asylum. Doctors. We have doctors coming in to make his asylum. And that's the point of the space. It's uh, whoever wants to make can come, use the tools, and get making because the only way to get making is just get your hands dirty and start doing it. And over the time, you will learn how to make the things right. You will learn how to uh, use the machines better. And a lot of people who came to us weren't necessarily technical. And uh, that was the point of the space that you don't need to be having a technical mindset to become a maker. So uh, we started teaching them. We started doing workshops. We started doing workshops on 3D printing, uh, laser cutting, drones uh we started then doing workshops on design thinking on how to actually solve problems for local communities so we started learning ourselves honestly we have been constantly learning from different different people that come there 
And as we learn from them, we incorporate those things into the programs at Makers Asylum. So we've had the privilege of working with organizations such as CRE, the Center of Research and Interdisciplinarity in Paris, UNESCO and others who have been very close to us over the years, uh, where they've been sharing a lot of their pedagogies with us and sharing a lot of their work with us. Uh, even companies like Ubisoft that makes games, uh, they've done so many workshops at Makers Asylum. So we've learned so much from them uh, and really put that into action through uh, what we do uh, in that way. Because at the end of the day, what we imagine Makers Asylum to be is a learning space or a learning playground, rather. How do people discover Makers Asylum? How has the community grown over the years? Uh, the community has grown uh, very slowly and steadily uh, with a lot of word of mouth, especially in Mumbai. Uh, that we moved out of Mumbai to Goa now. And I still think a lot of this is word of mouth, but I think over the years, the community has now grown uh, quite a bit offline and online. So now a lot of people have been aware of uh, uh, Makers Asylum, Maker Spaces, the concept of making, the concept of being a maker. People want to go hands-on. And this we're talking in the context of India where, you know, there is still 95 to 99% of the mindset, which is still very traditional learning, mm-hmm. very traditional professions, right? So uh, I think it's been a lot of work and collaboration that we've had in the past with a different kind of organizations, universities, you know, the whole community at large. So I think uh, it's still very niche, but I think there's a, there has been a lot of talk now about innovation spaces and maker spaces uh, by the government of India as well, where they're doing a lot of work around sort of creating these um, you know, these kind of spaces in rural areas, in tier one, tier two cities with uh, under schools, etc. So the conversation has become uh, much larger now. Yeah, for sure. Everyone. Uh, social media has obviously been a great help. Uh, so Makers Asylum started on meetup.com and Facebook mm-hmm. with inviting people to come over and make stuff. And then eventually we uh, had a community brewing. Uh, when we got our own first garage, which was in the middle of nowhere, I would say it was in Bandra at the back of one of the buildings, uh, pretty hard to find, but people still used to find us. And I don't know how, uh, then eventually we got a call from Google one morning at 6am. Oh no, that's not 6am, but like it felt like 6am. <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, the lady on the line was like, hi, I'm calling from Google. She had a very English accent. And she goes like, uh, who are you guys? Where are you guys located? Uh, we need to put you on the map. Uh, so uh, basically, I guess people were searching for us, but the location was like not right. So they were trying to put us on the map of Google Maps. Uh, the next day I found us on Google Maps, which is really, really cool. So <laughs> I think uh, things like this happen, which are simple little moments uh, of excitement and fun that really uh, showed that there was a need of maker spaces. And that's what kept us going. That's awesome. In my conversation with Navi and Jadeep, they were talking a bit about not reinventing the wheel and using technology that already exists to sort of advance your mission. Um, I think what you've done with sort of using Meetup and Facebook and these existing platforms to grow Makers Asylum is a true uh, testament to that, which is so great to see. I'm sure you've seen many examples at Makers Asylum of technology that already exists being used in interesting ways to address everyday problems. All the time. Uh, Anything from making art on a laser cutter by burning wood to uh, making coffee using a drill machine to making uh, 
uh, a robot to service coffee, uh, making a jalebi bot to make jalebis on a frying pan. We've seen technology uh, do a lot of cool stuff uh, and a lot of jugars to uh, make our lives better. <laughs> other project which is open, uh, which is satellite ground station, uh, you know, and which is being made with the community, which is so crazy for me to have something like that at this space. So, I mean, they're like different kind of projects uh, which are here at this space. Awesome. Yeah, anything from prosthetic hands, uh, a prosthetic nerf gun, I would say, or basically a nerf gun attachment to a bionic, uh, to a decapitated hand. Those are some fantastic examples. I'll definitely take the Jalebi bot. Um, so in my conversation with Nabi and Jadeep, and for those listening, I keep coming back to that conversation because there's a strong alignment um, between that and the conversation here, which is, by the way, episode two of our podcast. Um, Jadeep and Nabi talk a bit about how Jagad innovation can have both commercial and societal value. In a lot of your posts, both of you talk about building Makers Asylum in a way that it has a vast social impact, but also pays for your bread and butter. Building creative business models for social enterprises is still a nascent space, and there's no one-size-fits-all. So what's the path to financial sustainability been like for Makers Asylum? So in the beginning, I think we never really had a business model. Uh, but then uh, over the years, we tried a lot of different different things. And... Uh, Eventually, we got Richa onto the team. So Richa can tell you what she is doing now. Uh, there are certain skill sets in the team and there are certain skill sets of the community um, that are very exciting to a lot of people. So one is, of course, the physical infrastructure. So where people can come in, access the space, become a member. Uh, the other one uh, that we focus and which is a much larger part of our revenue stream is programs. You know, programs like the SDG schools, team school, all the experiential learning programs where we work on the UN sustainable development goals uh, with the group every year, customized to different universities and different partners. So um, that's definitely been one of our, uh, you know, one of our biggest strengths of how to curate this kind of a program where people can actually learn from each other, people can actually work on problems and take action because, you know, we talk about the UN Sustainable Development Goals, we talk about, you know, climate change, but most of the people really don't know where to start. Now we've had um, alumni in over 25 countries over the four or five years now that we've been doing this program. The third part of the vertical also focuses on, on a lot of uh, product development with a bunch of uh, corporate organizations who are working on products to make it better. So that's Along with the community. Along with the community of Makers Asylum. It's giving not just us, but a sustainable model to the community as well, because we get the right people at the right time to work on these projects. We bring in the right kind of community for the right kind of problem statement that the, um, that the you know, corporate organizations, etc. are looking for, and then work on product development. Uh, in addition to that, now we've started making our own products, which is there on the retail store, um, which we've started with healthcare, obviously, but now it's progressing into hopefully more things and diversifying into a bunch of stuff there. And uh, the last bit of it, uh, I think now that we've uh, moved to an online learning platform that we've created, so sort of, I don't know, how, I don't know if I want to call it edtech, but it's more like a online learning platform, which is uh, Learn at Nature Society, where uh, we're offering our courses online, which also has a component of hardware and hands-on education learning at home. 
So there are hardware kits that we've designed that come to your house and you can learn with our uh, makers and instructors that we've curated for you one is to one uh, and learn about making uh, from home because uh, uh, having physical spaces has a lot of obviously capital that goes into uh, maintaining an investment that goes into so sort of reimagining ourselves in a more um, digital fashion where we can reach more people. <laughs> so for people who can't come to us, the space comes to you. Yeah. Love that. And I love the approach of developing offerings around skill sets and strengths that different stakeholders find interesting and valuable. I'm a huge supporter of building something that appeals to a broad set of stakeholders, especially within the social enterprise space. So... Let's talk about 2020. I don't even know where to begin unpacking Makers Asylum's incredible work with the M19 initiative. It's just so inspiring. So let me try to wrap my head around this. I'm sure there was that moment where you had to close your doors to your space. You know, quick decisions needed to be made. What exactly happened at that moment and what followed it? So just like you said, there was some point at which we had to close doors and that was the 23rd of March in India when the lockdown started. But what we did is that we did close the doors, but we locked ourselves inside the asylum. (laughs) Yeah, Richa, myself, Naren, a few other team members. Uh, At that time, it really felt like the apocalypse is here, honestly. And I think all of us thought about it at some point or the other. So especially when the lockdown started and uh, the virus was out there and it was the pandemic was hitting India, uh, it just felt like, oh, it's going to be the start of an apocalypse. So mm-hmm. what better place to be at than a makerspace? And that's what we did. We locked ourselves inside the makerspace. We started looking at things, what we can do to be able to help, uh, to be able to share. So that's when uh, the first project uh, which we started working on was uh, face shields. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we made the first prototypes on the same day. And uh, the next uh, started showing it to doctors. So we literally uh, started, we immediately open sourced them, shared them on Facebook and other open source communities, asking about what did they think about the design? Because a lot of people were doing, uh, were making 3D printed face shields, but 3D printing is a very slow process compared to laser cutting, which is a super fast process. Uh, And there is an industry around it. So we were making laser cut designs because uh, it's faster, better, and cheaper. And uh, we made a few prototypes. We didn't go to the hospital, but we went to the doctor's houses to show it to them mm-hmm. and get feedback from them to understand what is wrong with this design. And we were able to constantly, really fast iterate on the design and figure out all the problems with our design. For example, in the beginning, we started with wood, which we realized is a very, very bad material because it's porous. So then we moved to something called acrylic and then eventually to foam board because it's cheaper and flexible. So we were able to do different kinds of materials really, really fast. We went through 21 design iterations in a very, very short amount of time and were able to come up with a design that worked. What we did after that was very, very exciting because uh, we opened up our lab completely to volunteers to come in to help make them Mm -hmm. because hospitals, police personnel, people from all across the city of Mumbai and India, rather, in different parts of India, started reaching out to us, asking for face shields. Mm -hmm. And uh, because they saw that we were making them on Facebook and other things, I guess, 
and the word was spreading because this was very highly in demand at that time and there was a huge shortage in india because in india was never we never manufactured face shields in india pb in general so when we started making them there was a huge uh, shortage so people from all over asking for them and we got our first uh, order from uh, a hospital in bangalore and we said sure let's make these and send them asap so that's when we figured out how badly the entire logistics and the uh, uh, supply chain is also choked because there were no courier companies working there were no f aircrafts working so how do you transport these face shields from one city to another city it was practically uh, it was crazy to be able to do that plus how do you get the raw materials to be able to manufacture these in a large number all the other factories were shut and all the shops were shut so that's when bring up other friends in other cities who would be down to make them uh, started making daily update videos on facebook and instagram to sort of motivate people to join us mm-hmm. and start making them so uh, literally we made daily update videos as labs joined us and uh, initially we had a target for makers asylum to make 10000 face shields we increased that target to 1 lakh face shields or 100000 but in a matter of 49 days we managed to make 1 million face shields uh, uh and till today we must have made over 2 or 3 million but we haven't been counting after the 1 million honestly the way it worked is that in the beginning it took us 15 days to make the first 100000 mm-hmm. the next 100000 happened in less than 7 days and eventually towards the end of the initiative we were making 100000 face shields a day and that's how we reached a a million in 49 days wow so this wasn't solely from your maker space but you activated like many cities this was out of uh, not just our maker space but a total of 42 town cities and villages across wow. india that joined the network uh, of the m19 initiative used the same designs so we open sourced the designs and uh, the know how on how to we made videos on how to create the assembly line on how to keep the lab safe and different different things on facebook and youtube and everywhere and shared them with all the other people over whatsapp and other things that richa was can tell you a little bit more about we were able to disseminate that information and uh create <clears throat> sort of a network of these labs really really fast that joined the movement and uh started making these facials locally in their cities and uh providing it to their local hospitals such a fantastic community led initiative um it's honestly such a great case study uh of just how to support communities in need and and act in the face of crisis um going to ask you a really silly question do you think your work over the years and all this informal learning you had on frugal innovation making fixing Do you think it set you up to help communities in need um or dare I say you know prepared you for the pandemic? Yeah. <laughs> uh I think you can't really uh prepare for a pandemic. <laughs> But I mean what was running through your mind on a more personal level? We had all sorts of emotions like every morning somebody or the other would wake up completely freaked out and be so scared. and freaking everyone out and just wearing like three layers of masks and face shields and working we we did a lot of precautions we used face shields we used masks while working we uh, worked on the same table uh, we did not share tables 
we uh, use the same uh, plate and spoon and glass to drink water and eat food. We didn't share those things because luckily what happened is that we had a lot of doctors who volunteered with us. So we had a surgeon from uh, a senior surgeon from a hospital. We had a pediatric in the room uh, who was volunteering to make face shields. We had uh, a neurosurgeon, uh, sorry, neuropsychologist who was also part of the uh, volunteering group. Uh, so the d diversity again, and the interdisciplinary nature of the volunteers and the team uh, really allowed to put everyone's skills together to be able to do this because uh, they were able to take care of us and tell us that what is to be done as we were finding out more and more about the virus. Mm -hmm. uh, while we were also going through an emotional time, everyone in the team and all the volunteers, we weren't going back home. So nobody who, that was there with family went back home. They all packed their bags and moved in to make us asylum. That's the volunteers did not step out of the asylum for literally two months. They were also pretty much living over there with us uh, or inside a designated house. And uh, together we sort of worked through uh, this time uh, to be able to contribute in whatever way we could. But I think what was really exciting and what's uh, there to learn out of this is the fact that there was a clear, straightforward purpose mm -hmm. with a clear, straightforward direction that allowed other labs to also be able to join. And uh, with the right way of transmitting the information, we were able to get them on boarded very quickly. There have been case studies written about the M19 initiative by uh, uh, OSMS, Open Source Medical Supplies, and they've been talking about other spaces as well uh, across the world. Uh, and it is very important that we prepare for other crisis in similar manners, I guess, or different things. There are some things to learn about it. It's a compelling story, um, an example of how to go out there and do stuff and use what we have, you know, skills, resources, technology, or time for that matter, for the greater good. Um, you know, if you take WhatsApp, for example, platforms like WhatsApp, especially in India, have unleashed the worst behaviors in humans. You know, you see WhatsApp fueling fake news and violence in India. So I think when you see an example like this, where it's being used to distribute knowledge and insights and help millions of people along the way, it's really worth pausing, you know, dissecting it, breaking it down and reflecting on society, culture and innovation. Correct. And just like that, we've been talking about Industry 4.0 and distributed manufacturing for the longest time. Mm -hmm. But distributed manufacturing, Industry 4.0 has been more about a word say. But this was exactly what distributed manufacturing is all about. You are distributed manufacturing locally, into the cities, towns, and villages where the need was to be able to create and provide right there using locally available materials. Uh, the other part was the uh, aspect of digital fabrication. The fact that today we are able to transmit uh, physical things via bits and atoms into whatever, by digital cord from one place to another online via the internet, and then be able to share that design. So literally uh, it was that easy that once we made the designs or anyone else made the designs, we were able to share it with a click of a button and another lab or another makerspace would get access to those files and is able to just put them on the laser cutter and press the go button. Yeah, that's quite a nice mix of technologies and everything that we've been doing in the past uh, as the world has been progressing, coming to uh, coming together to be able to make all of this possible. 
Absolutely. And it's the years of work prior to March 23rd that in some ways kind of prepared you to rise in the face of adversity. Uh, Richa, congratulations on being Vogue's on Vogue's Women of the Year list. Um, you know, looking at the list, it was so refreshing to see a new set of heroes being celebrated across all fields and segments of society, um, celebrating their resilience, their skills and contributions. Um, I was so inspired to see that list. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, amazing to see everyone's work. I think uh, there have been such beautiful stories and we were experiencing some uh, really amazing work alongside when we were in Bombay. We had a bunch of friends who were doing such fantastic work uh, with uh, uh, migrant workers mm -hmm. in, uh, in India who were facing challenges with going back. So uh, this whole group uh, called Khana Chaye was uh, and Project Mumbai and they were doing all this work right in front of our eyes and it was just so overwhelming to see just everyone just get together and you know really truly um, you know think beyond uh, individual uh, individualistic you know uh, approach. You know we talk a lot about collectivist versus individualist cultures do you think we'd be able to see or, or did you see examples like this of you know collective action across the world? I mean, I think the community of makers across the world did the same thing. Mm -hmm. So you see, uh, we did the same thing in India. This happened in the US. This happened in France. This happened in Germany. It, this happened in Brazil. And this happened everywhere else that makers just got together. And the only thing that they knew was making. So if you see all the case studies across the world, uh, I think the community of makers have a different kind of principle, which is uh, religion, uh, you know, religion agnostic. It's just making, you know, and uh, making for a purpose and making for passion and uh, making to really uh, drive the community forward. And I think every maker community across the world did the same thing, and which is the most surprising part to me because everyone's so, I mean, the the whole maker movement is so um, you know, the foundation of it is so deep and uh, exciting that everybody just knew one thing, you know, we've got to get up, we've got to make, we have the access to the labs and we've got to support the healthcare community because they don't have access to this and they are our frontline warriors, you know, in this whole battle against COVID-19. So, I mean, it's just astonishing the way how, how, how similar all everyone everyone across the world yeah. was, you know, uh, doing. So that's, I mean, I would say that, you know, uh, the whole maker movement and the maker culture is agnostic of region and religion and caste and creed, and which is truly believing in the power of community. Great insights there. I love the point about making for purpose and passion over anything else. Again, congratulations on all the fantastic work. Finally, for those listening, what's a call to action or a piece of wisdom you'd like to leave them with? Irrespective of your age, your discipline and your, uh, you know, your training, academic training, I think you can contribute to much larger, uh, you know, problems of the world and you can contribute in your simple ways. So we learn from each other every day. So it's very important for us to break the barriers of all of this. Uh, if we don't collaborate with each other, uh, we'll have a very different world uh, tomorrow. So today is the time where we break all kinds of barriers, get together and start, you know, working towards a larger goal. 
Thank you, Vepa and Richa, for the fantastic conversation and all that you do. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Be sure to follow Makers Asylum. There is a way for you to get involved in their mission and join the movement if you are near or afar. That brings us to the end of episode four. We have one conversation left in this season, and I feel like I've only just scraped the surface of modern day Jagad. But wait, I have a surprise for you. My co-founder of Jagad Community, and full disclosure, my mother is here with me. Hi everyone, I'm Preeti, the co-founder of Jagad Community. Thought I'd pop in to say hello. As usual, send us your comments, feedback, suggestions, like, subscribe to our podcast, and follow us on Jagad Community on Instagram or Facebook. We'd love to hear from all of you and we read every single comment. Join us for our season finale next month. Till then, stay safe and healthy.